You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. To listen to previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Meet the Farmers, which is coming to you from Suffolk. And for the first time on the podcast, at long last, I might say, we're putting the focus on pigs. Today's guest is Mark Hayward of Dingley Dell Pork. Dingley Dell was established in 1999 by Mark and his brother Paul on their farm near Woodbridge in the beautiful Deben Valley of Suffolk. Their aim was to produce superb tasting, welfare friendly pork with impeccable provenance. Keep that in mind, guys, for later. Mark, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's a pleasure. I made a mistake when I talked to you on the phone, first of all. I called you a pig producer, but you wouldn't necessarily call yourself that. (laughs) No, I suppose we tend I mean, we obviously, we're hands-on with the pigs and we keep pigs, but we tend to think of ourselves as food producers, and that's what we focus on. Can you give me a sort of brief family history of farm and and how you first got involved and then how you took it up, took it forward? Yeah, sure. You and your brother took it Yeah, my father had indoor pigs, and he had about 250 sows indoors, uh, producing just normal sort of commodity pork. I went away to, I did my A-levels. I wasn't sure I wanted to farm, but I've always been involved in, you know, every weekend I was at work in the pigs, every summer holidays, but I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to farm. So I went to Australia for a bit, and when I was out there, I decided, actually, I don't want to live in a city, and I do want to farm. So I came back. I then went to work for a farmer in Yorkshire for about a year, a guy called Richard Lister, which was very good. I then went to college for about six months, and then I came back on the family farm. So I got involved in the indoor pigs my father had, set up a small outdoor unit where we just had the sows outside, thoroughly enjoyed it, preferred it to um, our indoor system which at the time was quite, wasn't in the greatest shape, so it wasn't the, the best indoor site, if you like. So the outdoor the outdoor thing worked really well. That was at a time when the supermarkets were going to move towards more welfare-friendly meat and all of the welfare legislation came in. So it seemed quite logical to, um, you know, move more of the pigs outside. As it happens, at, at and around that time, we got a... A disease problem called swine dysentery which is pretty unpleasant and we tried to eradicate it and couldn't and in the end all of the pigs we ha- had to go so we we destocked both the indoor and the small outdoor and then decided to come back with just an outdoor setup so this would have been in my early 20s okay so what happened then was we had a we came back with an with an outdoor setup and then that was at a time when the pig price crashed for around ten years, and um, farmers were <clears throat> pig farmers were very upset that you know new welfare legislation had come in that basically made it illegal for us to produce like they did on the continent, but it was okay for the supermarkets to sell it. So anyway, pig farmers got quite militant, which we were involved in, and there was a lot of blockading of supermarket distribution centres, etc., um, right across the country. And so there was a period there where sort of half the pig industry went out of business. It was very militant. It was not good financially. At that time, I just wanted to farm pigs. 
Sally Paul wanted to try and find a way of making it work and realised actually what we need to do is we need to be a more important part of the supply chain. So that's when we formed the brand, if you so like. That's when Daily Yeah, and it began it began really as as a way initially it was that's how we gain some power in the supply chain. So our, our thought process was, you know, right, if we have our own brand, if it gets sold in supermarkets, which is where we worked initially, um, if people buy it, if the supermarket makes their margin, what's the problem? You know, so that, that was how the whole thing started. And at the time we said we would make it about animal welfare, taste, provenance, sustainability, if you like, and that's what we did, but it's a lot more sophisticated how we go about it now, obviously. Where does the name come from? I could give you the answer that it's a reference in Charles Dickens, <laughs> which I sometimes use that if I wish to come up, or if I wish to try and uh, project a veneer of cultural sensitivity. <laughs> but the reality is it was when I was at college, I had a very good friend, and if he had a few beers, then he would come out with this filthy rhyme about Dingley Dell pork, and it just kind of stuck. <laughs> or Dingley Dell, it was about, and um, we needed a name f- when we set when I set the first outdoor unit up. Needed a name for it for the management account, so we called it Dingley Dell. So that's that's the real one. Can you describe your typical day? So we were speaking before we started recording of how you and so your brother is the, there's there is an arable side of the business as there well. Is. Um, which your brother tends to move more in those circles. Uh, you're moving more in the circles with the pigs, but you're both mucking in, in both sides. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Quite a bit of the time it will be on farm, maybe, I don't know, half five, half six in the morning. So I might spend the morning on farm and then spend the afternoon in the office, or it could be, you know, we could be having, most weeks we would have a bunch of chefs around, so again, they'd probably turn up for the afternoon. Every now and again, there'll be export trips, so I'll be abroad for a few days. So it, it just depends on what's happening, really. But it's it's lovely. It's a mix of um, being abroad, being in London, yeah. you know, mucking around with meat, mucking around with chefs, or mucking around with livestock. Yeah. And how does that compare to when, say, when you first started the brand, um, when I imagined that life was pretty hectic? <laughs> oh, it's... Um, I don't think we ever envisaged we would get it to this point. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, the joy of what we do now is we can take it in any direction we wish to take it now. It took a long time to get it right. It took years to get it sort of sorted. But now it's kind of sorted in a way that if we want to have a go at a new market, we can. If we want to try new products or if we want to look at different ways of doing stuff, we can. So I, there's a lot of flexibility in what we do now that, that certainly wasn't there in, in the early days anyway. Tell me about the pigs. How many how many sows are in the herd? We're running about 950 sows, which are all outdoors. We run our own nucleus and multiplication herds within that. So effectively, for what would generally happen would be a farmer would um, he would produce his crop or his livestock or his vegetable and he would sell to a packer and that would be his relationship with the market. He would be paid on a commodity price or a local price, the market price. He wouldn't be able to influence his price, so everything he did would be about throughput or speed of growth or getting my spuds bigger or whatever it was. So he'd be very, very much driven by uh, trying to produce at the least cost. 
because he couldn't control his output price. And he would buy, your normal pig farmer, he would probably buy in his females and his males for breeding. Those animals would have been selected and bred for speed of growth or numbers born, but basically traits designed for productivity. In our situation, we control our own and produce our own breeding animals. So because our, our focus is on taste first, if you like, the animals we're producing, which we will breed from, we are trying to influence for taste. So we're running a pure Duroc herd and the Duroc has a higher level of marbling and marbling is intramuscular fat. It's the little white lines you see running through meat. And basically, we work with a meat scientist. If you ask a meat scientist what is taste and flavour or how do you get taste and flavour, they will say it is the intramuscular fat or the marbling in meat that constitutes flavour. So our, our whole breeding program is based around marbling. And so we have the pure Duroc herd where we know the marbling score of each individual animal. We're able to measure a live animal and assess its marbling. We're using software that was designed for the American beef industry. So we'll, we'll basically, we'll scan a live animal, we'll take photographs, we'll then put that data into the marbling program yeah. or the American software. That will then give the animal a score. And then what we will do consequently is we will breed most marbled to most marbled at nucleus level or great grandparent level. So we will be we will be making decisions, our breeding decisions, who we make to who, will be based on marbling score. So that over time we re, we are increasing the level of marbling in our pure Durox by about fifteen percent year on year. So it's it's quite a complicated program, but if you just think about it in terms of all we've done is take the emphasis for selection of things like speed of growth and we've put it on on marbling. Mm -hmm. So we're running 950 sows. There's probably about 160, 170 pure Durox in there. The mother of the animal we process is a Duroc land race, which we, again, we produce ourselves from our multiplication cross. And you're crossing it with a large We wife. cross it back to a Duroc. Crossing with a Duroc. Yeah. So, so we basically, we, the animal we sell, we process is 75% Duroc. Okay. And our marbling program we are affecting both the male and female parents both lines both sire and dam we're working on at the same time has that been your system from the early days of dingley dale no no not at all towards that yeah we we've well, shifted more and more towards this kind of system i mean in our early days when we talked about taste um you know we kind of took what research was on the internet we did a few things for taste which were beneficial but for the last probably seven or eight years we've had a, a proper meat scientist involved and their role is to look at not just what we do on farm in terms of lack of stress but also um, how we feed them how the chill chain works you know handling at the abattoir so basically just or well, what constitutes taste and what are the factors in the meat supply chain that we need to look at when you went through that process of moving towards that stage and working with Caroline Keeley, yeah, yeah, when you're working with Caroline, is there was there anyone else who you were looking at 
to doing similar things well, to advocate I, or was this, was, was this innovative in its own right? I think, to be fair, what happened was, you know, we'd started exporting or we, you know, we were exporting to countries such as Hong Kong and Singapore and you see a lot of Japanese Wagyu on yeah, sale yeah. and Japanese Wagyu is a, you know, it's a specific type of beef. It's been bred for massively high levels of marbling and doesn't really taste like beef. Its price point's very high, and it, it, it's really quite an interesting and unique product in a lot of ways. And you kind of, you just kind of look at it, and you think, well, that's, this is really interesting, you know, because these guys are focusing on taste. You know, there are you've, you've kind of got two markets in the meat in the meat industry. You've got the sort of taste or welfare market, and then you've got your kind of everyday market where people are trying to produce meat to a price point which which i get i understand that but i think what you deliver as farmer is something that has got impeccable animal welfare credentials but at the same time you've got it's got to be something that tastes really well let's turn towards that sales and marketing side in the early days how did you begin to build relationships with chefs well in the early days we started with supermarkets and oh, okay. um, i probably spent we did uh, a local sausage with Tesco's. We did some work with Asda. We did a whole range into about 65 co-op stores. Yeah. So we did quite a lot in retail. And I spent hundreds of days cooking in store <laughs> in uh, simple recipes or cooking sausages. And, and that's how we tried to kind of get going in, in retail. Yeah. And about... Probably for the first year or two, we focused on retail. In fact, interestingly enough, we had a, a professor of economics get involved in what we were doing who kind of told us, right, you need to do retail, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And in, in actual fact, we did the complete opposite <laughs> after a while of what he told us to do. But I think the thing was with retail was what we found quite difficult was, one, you are one product of many in a category. And we didn't really see that one coming at the start. So, you know, you're, you're delighted you've got a sausage in Tesco's. You go in there to have a look at it, and it's one of 50. And you realise that actually it's not that quite straightforward. We spent a lot of time in supermarkets, particularly myself, cooking for members of the public. And it didn't do us any harm. But I think, you know, we got involved with one or two chefs locally, and we realised, well, actually, if we can convince the chef this is the pork he wants on his menu, it's job done. Yeah. You know, we don't have to convince anybody else. Yeah. Obviously, the, the downside of that is a, a pork is one of many items on a menu, so the volume for an individual restaurant is not that big. Mm. But the, probably the loyalty factor is far greater, mm. if you like. So we just fell into into local chefs, and then we fell into sort of a bit more distant, then we fell into doing stuff in London, and then it came sort of a bit more nationwide, and then, you know, obviously start doing a bit of export work. How does it work in terms of distribution of product? We have um, one or two partners we work with who have distribution within a certain area. For some of the bigger accounts we deal with, then they might be using a national distributor or might even be they might even be using one of the big distributors as, as say, a set of wheels. So logistics is always going to be the hardest part of trying to do this but you know with the right people or if the right person wants it you can generally solve it but logistics is the absolute key you've been part of the rspca's freedom food scheme um, yeah. for about 15 years or so i, I have yeah. um for listeners who aren't aware of what that is what does it involve well it's um 
It was a scheme that was set up by the RSPCA and the idea was back in the early days when it was set up that they would bring out a welfare labelling mark that you see on, on packaging and that would mean that farm had been audited by the RSPCA or to a set of their standards and the idea was that that would be assurance to the public and if the demand for the RSPCA products grew then animals would be taken out of perhaps conventional farming and placed in that type of farming so yeah we've been involved with it for, for a long time but the way we farm we go well beyond their schemes so we're trying to head towards more of a holistic approach to how we do stuff so obviously we're going to provide the animals with animal welfare but we're then also we're looking at how we fought how we commercially farm if you like if we run a how we run our business within the context of the environment so how can we um increase the biodiversity of different species in and around our farming practices so we i think we're going to a more holistic approach generally across the whole farm yeah with that environment aspect in mind i have in front of me um, a leaflet for the one million uh, bumblebees one million bees project yeah uh, which you're involved in tell me about yeah. that well, we've always had, you know, around our farm, we've got six metre margins or wildlife corridors around every single arable field. Our father, when he was alive, he was very much into um, conservation. So we grew up with a love of the countryside, songbirds, etc. And as a business, we've always planted a little bit of wildflowers here and there to feed pollinators, to feed bees. And then last year we decided, why don't we, when we move the pigs, so when we flip them onto grass, why don't we drill behind them and plant some, in fact last year it was Facilia, which is a lavender type plant, beautiful blue plant. So we planted some real big tranches of the Facilia. The time we were working on a, a, a wildlife diary around the farm, so we hired a student for one day a week and her job was to record all the different species on the farm. And we knew when we planted this facilia that it was going to feed bees. That was why we planted it. It's an issue with the number of bumblebees. We wanted to try and improve the number of bumblebees on the farm. Well, it, it worked phenomenally well. It just unbelievable. We planted about 10 hectares of facilia, which is um, 100,000 square metres. We planted it in a staggered fashion. So the idea was we we'd plant it at different intervals. So when it came into bloom for say six, seven weeks, um, that tranche would be in bloom. And then once that had died off, there would be another tranche. So the whole idea was to try and get Facilia um, in bloom for as long as possible to sustain bumblebees um, over a longer period. Because do you want me to go into briefly the problem yeah, with yeah, the bumblebee? Yeah. Yeah, the biggest problem with the bumblebee is they build up colonies of two or three hundred. At the end of the year, the only thing that survives is the queens. So the queens, solitary queens, they will go and hibernate over winter. They come out in spring. There's absolutely no issue. It's a single bee. She's flying around. Plenty of food. There's uh, you know blossoming hedgerows. There's dogwood. There's plenty for her to eat. She will start building her colony up from around the beginning of June onwards. If you look at particularly the East Anglian countryside and most of the arable farming that goes on, there's very little 
standard crops grown that produce nectar. Well, there's hardly any. There's rape, but rape tends to be going out of flower early June. So the poor old bumblebee, as it's building its colony up, the amount of available food in the countryside gets less and less and less. So one of the issues the bee has is they basically, they starve. So what they, and the beekeepers call it, or the bee guys call it the June gap. So the whole idea is to plant wild, there's no, no point having loads of wildflowers in April because you're talking about solitary queens. What you want is a real slug of nectar available from early to mid-June, hopefully right the way through to the end of September. So that allows the bumblebees, they can build up their colonies, plenty of food, so nice big colonies. They'll produce, if there's plenty of food, they'll produce one tranche of queens halfway through. You might get two, two broods, if you like. So anyway, last year we planted lots of facilia. We recorded the number of bees on it, and we sort of we made up a simple metre square. And we found that on a hot day, you could have between 10 and 14 bumblebees per square metre on the facilia. We managed to retain between the 2nd of June when the first facilia came out and the end of September last year, we maintained a minimum of two hectares in bloom at any one time. So 20,000 square metres at 10 bumblebees a metre, 200,000 bees. So if we had one tranche in bloom, minimum 200,000, we actually at one stage, we had more than one tranche and we estimated we had about 600,000 bees on farm. At the same time, while this was going on, we were showing around the food, the, the chefs and the food service guys, and they absolutely loved it. And they totally understood the concept that if we, on our farm, or if the countryside wants to have more biodiversity or more species or a better ecosystem, it has to start with insects. If you get insects, you get birds, you get small mammals. So effectively, the idea of planting lots of wildflowers and attracting bees, you know, it's a, it's a really sound principle. And, and the bees, the signature cuddly pollinator, if you like. You're obviously going to get butterflies, you're going to get everything. So we got a phenomenal response from the food service industry last year. And the whole million bees thing was this year. We said, right, we want to put a real stake in the ground over this. You know, we're going to do this on a grand scale across the farm. Our main business partner is a guy called Martin Blackwell, who has a, a meat business called Direct Meats. He co-funded half of it. Right. There so, is, there is, I was thinking in on our farm, we've gone into a high-tier countryside stewardship yes. agreement as of this year. I'm assuming that this is all outside natural yes, jurisdiction. Yes, we are involved in the countryside stewardship scheme and have right. been but that's but the million the million bees project which is 35 hectares is outside of it yeah um in fact it's 12 times the amount of conservation you know outside of the scheme we're involved in going into this year we said right we want to have a million bumblebees on farm because you know it was just awesome last year the idea was this year look we'll do it in a bigger way we'll try and get some publicity and we'll try and get a conversation going in the meat industry or in agriculture about how do we farm and draw nature in rather than push nature out because you can walk into a field of wheat and you, know, you can drive around here for miles and there's very, very little available food for bumblebees, period, around the land in East Anglia. Tell me about getting chefs onto farm. 
because you have an awful lot of chefs come onto your farm. <laughs> we do. Um, and we it's do. a big part of what you do. Uh, well, when did when did that begin? It began right right early on, actually, with the first chefs we started working with. We realised that um, I suppose if you look if you looked back over all the time I've been farming, and particularly when we first started Dingley Dell. When we first started Dingley Dell, there probably wasn't a lot of interest in going on farm and stuff. But a few years into it, the whole celebrity chef thing kicked off and it became a lot more food programs on television. And I think the chef world became far more interested in, you know, where does my food come from? And I think we kind of just, in some ways, we happened to be in the right place at the right time to tap into that. We started having a few chefs, and not every chef we deal with comes out here, not by a long way, but but a, but a large number do. Uh, and that's been brilliant for us because those guys move jobs, they take us with them, they move abroad, they contact us. You know, we've built up a lot of relationships over the years with a lot of different people. A lot of the guys that perhaps come out here when they're students, because we have a lot of colleges out, or, or they're young chefs when they end up running a place of their own, they'll bring people out and partly I think you know for a lot of these businesses for them to take some of the guys out of the kitchen show them around a farm have some food really understand the science and nature of you know producing food it's it, it's a real win-win you export to eight different countries now nine uh, countries? I think it, it well small volume to about 11 11 11 yeah how much of a learning curve was it when you oh, began huge, huge. developing uh, that sort well, of idea and, mi- mis- and mistake, and if, yeah. If, if another food producer were to take the leap, um, what advice would you give them? We we eventually ended up doing a lot in London with a lot of top end food businesses and chefs, if you like. And I got the opportunity. I'd not really travelled or anything, you know. Had my head down on farm, and I, I got the opportunity to go out to Shanghai with. Uh, on a well, it was it was a food show, a trade show, and I was sponsored to go out there just to have a look, or I had the opportunity to, and um, I went out there, and there were Tyrrell's crisps out there, and there was one of one or two other British brands that were showing within the. It was a Shanghai food show, and they had a British section, and while I was out there, I chatted to a lot of these businesses, and I just thought, you know what, we we, we should have a go at this. You know, we could have a go at this. And it was probably not till about 18 months or a year later. It was quite a while. I went and did a food show in Hong Kong, desperately hoped that a distributor might be interested. Uh, I think when we got there, realised that actually, you know, we were actually known in Hong Kong by some of the British chefs that were there, or they'd been familiar with our product in London. And that was the starting point. I think the biggest mistake we made was assuming that what because of how we did stuff in the UK was how we should do stuff there. <laughs> that was a massive mistake. And so now we're a bit more relaxed. If you look at a new market, we tend to sort of sit back and try and understand what they do, why they do it, rather than going in thinking, we know how to do this. So yeah, big learning curve, but really interesting learning curve. Should we move the conversation outside and have a look around? Yeah, definitely. Where are you sending for killing? Um, CK Meats, which is at I. Okay. So it's about a 40 minute drive. They gassed them, which is why we sent them there, because I believe it's better than electricity. Why do you say? Well, basically, the problem, most of the modern plants they build now, they put gas in. 
because if you stun a pig, you've got to tongue it. And you know, if you've got a guy who's tonguing pigs all day, he's going to get tired and he's not going to get it right on everyone. Whereas gas is, it takes out the human element. It, when you electrocute a pig, you put a lot of force through it and it can cause femurs to break, uh, can cause um, um, arteries to burst. So it's, it, I wouldn't say it's stressful on the animal because I think it just knocks them out straight away, but it's quite stressful on the carcass. Okay. What do you think public payments for public goods actually means? Whenever government get involved in anything, it's prescriptive. And you can't be prescriptive. When it comes to the environment and farming, every farm is going to be different. Every farm is going to be suitable for certain types of wildlife. You know, every farm is going to be different. So having a prescriptive scheme is kind of wrong. Yeah. I don't think farmers should necessarily be held responsible for looking after the environment off their own back. I think the environment is is society's problem. You know, if you know, if we want as a society, it doesn't matter whether we're producing meat or plants. If we want to have a thriving planet, we need a thriving ecosystem. So we need pollinators. We need everything. If farmers are going to turn over a proportion of their land to do that or to improve the habitat, then that's what needs to happen. But I think it needs to be collectively paid for in the price of food. It's not a significant cost to do that. You know, for to, to get a farmer to say take out his worst five, six, seven percent of his land and you know create a wildlife habitat or grow some wildflowers or, or, or whatever, it's not going to be a significant cost, but it is society's cost. Yeah. Would you describe yourself as a conservationist? I'd like to think so. Yeah, probably not. I, I, maybe as I've become older, I mean, we were brought up to be like that, but the, we've done so much work around the farm the last couple of years, particularly focusing on bumblebees. It's been incredibly rewarding to see. It's been incredibly well-received by our customers. And, you know, I kind of, I feel, you feed the bees, you feed your soul. Yeah. You know, this field we're driving past, the, the, Nothing's going to live in that field. Yeah. And that's quite sad, really. I mean, uh, we have, apparently we have four years without bumblebees, so it's a it's a big concern. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, uh, the chefs are coming out to the farm and <coughs> seeing the results for themselves. Is that story then translating to their consumers, their customers? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's really only the last two years we've been really focusing on on explaining that side of it. Um, but it's such a simple, tangible thing for them to see. You know, we can we'll walk them in a field of wheat that's ripe and say, well, you know, have a look. What you know, what insects can you find? I oh, can't find any mark. Well, that's the whole point. You know, that crop is being grown to produce lots of wheat. You're not going to find anything in it. But you know, if we as farmers plant this, it will support huge amounts of pollinators. So they get it. It's, it's very tangible for them. Or over the last two or three years, I've made a point of trying to chat to younger people because that's my next generation of customers. And it seems to me that the 20, 30 year olds are very interested in sustainability, not 100% sure necessarily how that is, what that is, how they enact it, but very interested in it, very interested in you know the planet.
and I, so I think something as simple as this, this regeneration of of the land, if you like, it strikes a chord, and, and that's brilliant. Yeah. This is the dry sows. As you can see, you know, obviously you can see the pure Durox, and those are the Durox landgraces. And obviously you can see the clover, which we, like I said, about 40% of the grass was sown with clover. And obviously you can see like there's this one big strip of pigs down here. So what would happen at probably in the next month or two, we will flip, we'll put all those pigs and huts on the grass and clover. Okay. And then we'll re-drill this with whatever we... So basically just trying to come up with that concept of, you know, yes, we are going to use that bit of land yeah, to put yeah. our pigs on, but how can nature benefit from that bit of land in the interim period? Yeah. And you're not organic. No. But how does your operation differ to, say, a Soil Association certified producer? Uh, probably, mainly, we don't feed organic feed. Yeah, but otherwise, in uh, terms of welfare and everything else. We would else. be fairly similar, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I haven't, re I haven't, to be fair, I haven't looked at organic standards for many years. I think the organic movement was great. You know, it's a shame it wasn't a local food movement, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they got a great thing going. And the trouble with organic meat, it's very expensive, particularly if it's pork or chicken, because 60, 70% of the animal's diet is cereals, or, you know, it, you know, we have to feed them. So you start using organic cereals and you massively increase the cost of production. Yeah. And obviously it's not as expensive to produce an organic carrot, pro yeah. rata. Yeah. So, you know, the organic thing, it, it does work, works well, you know, but maybe those price points are a bit steep for yeah. a lot of restaurants. So what's the future of your business? Paul and I have got uh, half a dozen children between us. Um, they're all a bit too young to make any serious decisions I guess yeah, yeah. but certainly like to think that you know the whole Dingdydale project would be carried on somehow yeah. um, I'm sure it will be you know f from my perspective and Paul's I think we you know we work hard we're enjoying the ride it's it's very you know you, you, the kind of people we sell to and the kind of businesses we work with they're very they're top businesses they're the kind of businesses that always pushing themselves yeah. particularly you know make better meals or be a better chef and working with those guys just spurs you on it makes you want to do it better yeah. it makes us want to do it better so you know the intellectual challenge if you like of what we're doing you know just gets better and better from yeah. from my perspective yeah. I want to do more of the sustainability stuff I really want to understand more and more about rebuilding ecosystems you know I know my brother's very much the same see what happens really Dingley Dell's Mark Hayward speaking to me last month at Ashmore Hall Farm in Suffolk. At a time when farmers and food producers are being pushed to really up their game, Mark's business stands as a flagship and an example of what one can achieve. He reminded me a good deal of Paul Kelly's business down in Chelmsford producing turkeys for the Christmas market. Paul featured in episode 8 of the podcast. A reminder that you can catch up with all previous episodes at thinkingcountry.com and do follow the podcast on iTunes. I'd really appreciate that. I've been your host, Ben Eagle, and this has been Meet the Farmers. I look forward to you joining me next time.